Our reading this evening is Acts 2, verses 22 to 41. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn, an, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Thank you for reading for us, and uh, thank you musicians and Craig for leading us through. Uh, this is a one-off sermon in the book of Acts. We're going to be uh, in a series in 2 Timothy through uh, the evening services through the month of, uh, well, through the term, really, up to East, Easter time. But we thought it would be good for us this evening just to have one, one uh, sermon on what is God doing in the world, what's happening in the world, what is he doing, how is he at work. Um, so I trust that will encourage us uh, tonight. So let's pray as we come to uh, this part of God's word together. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. We thank you that you tell us in your word that it is breathed out by your Holy Spirit and that you have also put your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people so they might hear and understand what you're saying to them. And therefore we pray this evening with confidence that you will speak 
And we ask, Lord God, that you'd help us, you'd open the, the eyes and ears of our hearts, that we would listen to you and then obey you in what you tell us. In Jesus' name, amen. What confidence do we have for the future of Christianity? That's the question we're going to look at this evening as we begin a new year. What confidence do we have for the future of Christianity? I think that's a good question for a church to ask at the start of any year, but especially for us this year, I think that's a good question for us. This coming year, we're going to have a new and renewed focus on mission. So in February, we have our Global Focus Month, and as you heard earlier, that kicks off with the Local Church Global Mission Conference, which will help us to support our global partners um, as they go about the work of mission in the world. But then later in the year in June, uh, we're going to have a mission weekend here in Chalmers, a series of events that we can invite people to, where people can hear uh, the gospel of Jesus. You'll have heard in the notices too, we've got Hope Explored starting next week. We have the big question, which is a new initiative on Sundays for people to come and ask questions about faith and life. And our regular ministries of evangelism and reaching out with the gospel and our training ministries, training people like our associates to go out with the gospel into Scotland and beyond. Lots of effort, lots of energy, lots of time, lots of money invested in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to Scotland and to the world. What confidence do we have that any of that is going to be effective? What confidence do we have that that's not all a complete waste of time? Because we might not be very confident at all. If you go back a few years, all the experts were saying that Christianity was going to die out, so maybe you thought that too. The rise of secularism, humanist philosophy, scientific atheism, all this would do away with God. John Lennon of the Beatles, he famously thought this. He declared that they were more popular than Jesus, very famously. And he said this in 1966, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and will be proved right. He's very confident that Christianity did not have a future. And we might well feel that way too in Scotland as we enter 2024 seems to us that the Christian faith is very much in decline all around us. But it's important for us to clock that we in the West, we have a distorted picture of what's going on across the world. The most recent studies have shown that though there is decline in the major denominations in the West, evangelical Christianity is actually growing, and it's growing across the world. Now, why is that? Why, 50 years on from Lenin's statements, why hasn't it all died out? And why is it actually growing? And why is it growing across the world and not just in one particular region? And sociologists would recognise that Christianity is the only truly global religion. Have you ever thought about that? All the major world religions, they have a geographical heartland that you could point to on a map. So Hinduism in India, Islam in the Middle East and North Africa, Buddhism in East Asia. The vast majority of the followers of these religions are located, concentrated into that particular geographical area and statistically have made very few inroads into other places. 
But where is Christianity's heartland? Well, it was in the Middle East. And that passage from Acts that we've had read there, uh, during that time, that's where all the Christians are gathered. That's where it begins. But where is it now? The Pew Research Centre says this. Today, only about a quarter of all Christians live in Europe, 26%. More than a third now are in the Americas, 37%. 24% in sub-Saharan Africa, and about 13% in Asia and the Pacific. And they make this statement, that Christians are geographically widespread, so far flung, in fact, that no single continent or region can indisputably claim to be the centre of global Christianity. Christians today are more likely to be speaking Spanish than English. They're more likely to have dark skin than light skin. And if current trends continue, in 10 years' time, the most common nationality for a Christian will be Chinese. Today, people are becoming Christians in their thousands in places like Iran, where Christianity is banned. Converts are threatened with imprisonment or even execution. How do we explain all that? It can't just be birth rates because it crosses cultures. It's growing through conversion also. Why has Christianity survived until today, 2,000 years and over, and now in the face of the rise of secularism? And why is it spreading across the world, even under persecution? And what can we expect for the future? As we begin 2024, Acts chapter 2 gives us three reasons to be confident about the future of Christianity. And the confidence is not found in current trends or in numbers. It's not found in moral reform or evangelistic techniques or even missionary endeavour. Now our confidence is founded solely upon Jesus that Jesus is alive, that he reigns from heaven, and that his spirit is at work in the world. That's how we're going to look at our passage this evening. It's on the back of the service sheet if you want to make notes. In those three parts, Jesus is alive, he reigns from heaven, and his spirit is at work in the world. So first of all, verses 22 to 32 of Acts chapter 2, that's page 910. Let me just set the scene for us in Acts chapter 2. This is the event that we call Pentecost. It's a few weeks after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus, they're gathered in Jerusalem. And we learn earlier in the chapter that God has sent his Holy Spirit upon them. And they are enabled supernaturally to proclaim the good news about Jesus in many different languages. Now there are many Jewish people in the city. It was kind of like a harvest festival But they'd come from all over the place. So they were ethically Jewish, but they'd come from all sorts of different uh, nations and gathered together. And so this strange phenomenon of these multilingual preachers, when people hear them speaking in their own language, it draws a crowd. And as the crowd gather, the disciple called Peter, he stands up and he begins to preach to them. And so we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 22. We're coming into the middle of the first ever Christian sermon. Peter's begun to quote from the Old Testament. First of all, from the prophecy of Joel. And that's the bit before our passage, verse 17 to 21. 
And there he explains that this Pentecost experience is the fulfilment of that particular ancient prophecy that God had promised through Joel to pour out his spirit in the last days to enable his people to prophesy, that is, to proclaim God's word in power. Why? Well, the answer is verse 21. So that many people might hear God's word and call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says that prophecy is being fulfilled right there in their midst as they hear others preach to them in language that they can understand. But then Peter goes on to explain the content of the gospel that is being preached. And that's where we join it in verse 22. Let me read. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's gospel begins and ends with Jesus. Notice how specific he's being about who he's talking about. Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle-working Jesus, the one whom God sent to you that you recognised. This Jesus was crucified by you through the Roman authorities. Jesus came to you and you killed him, says Peter. Now for a message of good news, that doesn't sound like very good news at all. And on its own it wouldn't be, but what follows makes it the best news that's ever been told. Verse 24. You crucified and killed him, but verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus was dead, but is alive. You killed him, but God raised him up. Death could not hold him. This was not God just reacting to a mistake, but was planned and prophesied long ago. He quotes from the scriptures again, this time from the Psalms, a thousand years before by the, written by the greatest of Jewish kings, King David. And the first quote is from Psalm 16, verse 25 of our passage. For David says concerning him, this is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's the grave, or let your holy ones see corruption, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter's point is that in the psalm, it sounds like David is speaking uh, as if God has told him that he himself, that he, David, will not rot in the grave, that he will not see corruption. But Peter's point is David's not speaking of himself. He can't be speaking of, of himself He must be speaking of his descendant, of Jesus, the Messiah. Because listen to what he says next. This is verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. 
Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he, that's David, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. The great King David's tomb was something of a tourist trap, apparently. People went to visit it, and no doubt some entrepreneurial folks, they charged a fee to see it, and there's some kind of gift shop there, probably little figurines of, of David. But the key thing that Peter wants to point out is that there's no evidence at all of David having vacated the premises. His dead body is still there for all to see. But Jesus' tomb, well, that's a different story. The great King David, his body rotted in the grave, like everyone else's in history, like yours will and mine will. The Bible teaches that death lays claim to us all as a punishment from God because of our sins. We cannot escape it. Once it has us, it grips us tightly in its embrace and will not let us go. But Jesus was the Holy One, Psalm 16, verse, this is verse 27 of our passage. He was the Holy One. He never sinned. He never broke God's law. He never disobeyed. He never acted in rebellion against God like each one of us does. His death on the cross was not for his sins, but for ours. He bore our sins in his body as God's wrath and anger against sin was poured out on him. He was paying the price for us as a substitute for us. But he himself was the Holy One. And because he was the Holy One, he was not subject to the grip of death. He could break free from its embrace. And he did. On the third day, he rose from the dead. And how do we know this is true? Eyewitnesses. Peter saw the empty tomb, as did many others. Not only that, Peter saw the risen Jesus. He spoke with him. He ate with him. He saw his wounds in his hands and feet and where the spear went into his side. There was no mistaking who he saw. The rest of the 12 disciples, they saw him too. And in fact, Jesus appeared to over 500 of them in one go. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses, says Peter. Jesus is alive. This astonishing claim has been at the heart of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. It makes Christianity absolutely unique. The bodies of all the other founders of religions lie in their graves. You can visit most of them. But Jesus is alive, not just spiritually, but in bodily form. Having paid the penalty for our sins, he broke through the grip of the grave, and appeared to many witnesses. It's an astonishing claim. I wonder, do you believe it? If you don't believe that, then why worry about anything else that Jesus said or did? If he didn't rise from the dead, as the Bible claims, then none of the rest really matters at all. But if he did rise from the dead, if he is alive 
well, then everything the Bible claims matters. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. And he is alive today. And this is our first reason for real confidence. We don't worship a dead religious figure, but one, the only one, who has conquered death and who lives. There is no one else like him. But of course, that may raise a question for us. If he is alive in bodily form, well, where is he? Why can't I see him? And that takes us to our second point, verse 33 to 36. Uh, he reigns from heaven. Who rules the world? Well, there have been many claims to that title over the centuries. The Roman Caesars, great kings of Europe, the Chinese dynasties, Islamic caliphates, the popes, British Empire, German Reich, Soviet Union, United States, and so on. All have come to power and all have gone in time, or will go in time. The claim of the Bible is that there is only one king who rules the world and that all the others will one day get on their hands and knees before him and he will put his feet up on their backs. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So after his resurrection and his appearance to his disciples, Jesus ascended into heaven. And these two events, his, his resurrection and his ascension, they're tied together in history and they're tied together in the testimony of the Psalms. That's what Peter's saying here. This is what the Bible teaches about where Jesus is now. And it's familiar to us, most of us, from the Hebrew series that we came off last year. Jesus is in the heavenly throne room. And what is he doing there? Well, three things these few verses teach us about what he's doing, which should really give us confidence. Here's the first. He is reigning. He's reigning over the universe as Lord and Messiah, God's promised king who is greater than David. Jesus is exalted to heaven by his Father to sit at his right hand, that is to share in his rule over all creation. That means that Jesus is no longer restricted to a specific place on earth, but is raised above it and he's able to oversee all that goes on in this world. He's directing its events for his glory and the good of his people. It means that nothing happens outside of his control. He reigns, and that should give us confidence. That's number one. Number two, he's bringing his enemies under his feet. The rest of Psalm 110, uh, where this quote is from and where Hebrews picks it up as well, it's Psalm 110 tells us that all the kings of the earth, all those who oppose Christ... 
And all those who would seek to rid the world of his church, of his people, all of them will one day be brought to their knees before him to be judged by him. It assures us that they will not achieve their goal in getting rid of him. It is certain because God has ordained it. Number one was he reigns. Number two is he's bringing his enemies under his feet. And here's number three. It's in verse 33. King Jesus has been authorised by the Father to pour out his Holy Spirit into the world. Why? Well, specifically, says Peter, so that his people might be equipped to proclaim his gospel so that people might be saved. It's verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, so the Father gives the promise of the Spirit to the Son, the Son then poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, that is the preaching of the gospel. The Spirit is given from the Father through the Son to the people of God that they might proclaim the gospel so that people might be saved. That's what Jesus is doing as he reigns and rules in heaven. He's pouring out his Spirit to his people so that they might proclaim the gospel. Peter then sums up his case for his hearers, verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus died, was raised, ascended and reigns from heaven as Lord and Messiah. And this is our confidence. He reigns from heaven. From that position he directs his mission in the world He pours out his spirit upon his disciples that they might proclaim his good news to the nations. We're on to our third and final point this evening, these final verses, verse 37 to 41. His spirit is at work in the world. Now at this point, Peter has concluded his sermon And the people, they want to respond. As the people hear Peter's preaching about Jesus Christ, something happens to them. They are cut to the heart, verse 37. That is that they feel it. uh, There is emotion, there is conviction. This risen and ruling Jesus Christ is going to bring all his enemies under his feet. And they realise at this point that that means them. Peter said it a couple of times. I wonder if you noticed that as it's been read out to you. He's been saying, this Jesus whom you crucified. They're responsible. They rejected Jesus as king. They went along with the decision to crucify him. And it was their sin that meant Jesus had to die. And when these people hear that truth, the Spirit of God cuts them to the heart. He convicts them of the truth of it. He persuades them that unless something changes, they will come under Christ's judgment. Brothers, what shall we do? They say. 
And you know, we are as guilty as they are. We too have rejected Jesus as king. We too have been very happy to get him out of the picture of our lives. It's our sin that meant Jesus had to die. We are responsible for crucifying our king. I wonder, have you come to realise that? Has that truth cut to your heart? It may be that this evening you can sense the Spirit of God convicting you of just that, that it is your sin that Christ died for. And perhaps your question is now the same as their question, what shall I do? Well, if so, listen to verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. The good news is that the one we crucified is the one who will save us. Salvation is found only in Jesus Christ. That's what verse 21 says. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you repent of your sins, call on Jesus to save you. Or you too can receive his forgiveness. And not only that, he will grant you new spiritual life. Life that begins now and lasts for eternity. Given to you by God the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus sends to live in you. Now this will mean a huge change in your life. It will be a turnaround, a repentance. And that's what the baptism marks. It's an old way of life left behind and a new life in Christ begun by the Spirit of God, a life lived in repentance with Jesus as your King. Maybe you haven't yet made that step, but you know that you need to. Well, we'd love to chat to you and help you to do that. But for those of us who are Christians already, I want us just to notice two things here. I want us to notice the extent of that salvation It reaches down historically and out geographically. Did you notice that? How does the promise of verse 39 work? It is a promise that reaches down through the generations to the children and it reaches across the world, out across the world to all who are far off. Verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 3,000 Jewish people became Christians that day. So in time would many of their children. In fact, the number of Jewish converts keeps growing as you go through the book of Acts. But it doesn't stop there. It spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And it has continued in the same vein through the millennia. Contained in the promise of verse 39. You see how significant that promise is. Contained in that promise are the millions of Christians in history from that day to this 
throughout the earth and the ones to come. The Spirit of God continues to be at work in the world through the preaching of the gospel to bring many to salvation in Jesus' name. We began our time tonight by asking a few questions. Why has Christianity survived until today? 2,000 years. And why does it survive now, even in the face of the rise of secularism? Why is it spreading across the world? And why is it doing that even under areas of persecution? And what can we expect for the future? What confidence do we have for the future of Christianity? As we enter a new year as a church, with this fresh opportunity for mission ahead of us, well, Acts chapter 2 gives us reasons for confidence, three reasons for confidence. Jesus is alive. He reigns from heaven. And his spirit is at work in the world. About 300 years after these days in Acts, there was an Egyptian Christian whose name was Athanasius. And he wrote these words, and let me leave you with this. Dead men cannot take effective action. Their power of influence on others lasts only till the grave. Deeds and actions that energise others belong only to the living. Well then, look at the facts in this case. The Saviour is working mightily among men. Every day he is invisibly persuading numbers of people all over the world, both within and beyond the Greek-speaking world, to accept his faith and be obedient to his teaching. Can anyone, in the face of this, still doubt that he has risen and lives, or rather that he is himself the life? Does a dead man prick the consciences of men? This is the work of one who lives, not of one dead. And more than that, it is the work of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that as we have looked at the spiritual condition of our world and particularly our country and our community, we confess that we have lost confidence. We know that there is a reality of spiritual evil and hard hearts. We know all of that is true. And yet, Lord, we have perhaps lost confidence in your power to save. And so at the beginning of a new year and with opportunity to reach out with the good news of Jesus, both here and further afield. We ask, Lord God, that you would restore our confidence that Jesus is alive, that he reigns in heaven, and that his spirit is still at work in the world through the proclamation of your word. Help us, Lord God, to be confident in that and help us to play our part in your great mission. In Jesus' name. Amen.